0: Hi there, I'm Rob Tursik, and I'm the CEO of Direct Education Worldwide and part of the team that created the COVID Smart training program for COVID 19. COVID Smart teaches the best practices for the prevention of the spread of the COVID 19 disease in the workplace. In an effort to help employers and their staff understand the complexity of the situation that we find ourselves in in this pandemic, we've launched a series of webinars. And today, my guest on the webinar is Michael Schmidt. Mike is the vice chair of the labor and employment practice at Cozen O'Connor in New York City. And he's a super lawyer. Uh, He's got a tremendous track record as an attorney with a specialty in employment law. Uh, But what might be very relevant to the folks who are watching this podcast and this webinar right now is that Mike is also a prolific writer and speaker on the subject of employment law. And he's written a number of very intelligent things about COVID-19 that I think are worthwhile. And you can find that at his podcast, which is called Employment Law Now. And the website is employmentlawnow.com. Well, Mike, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm happy you could do it.
1: I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. I don't know how I followed that nice introduction, but, uh, but thank <laughs> you for having me.
0: It's all right. Well, your, your uh, track record speaks for itself. I mean, if you go to the Cozen O'Connor website and you look at Mike's bio, you'll see that he's been very successful in representing a number of firms in uh, labor cases, But that's not all. In our previous conversations, what I've discovered is that Mike has a great deal of compassion for workers and a very good understanding of the complexity of the situation that COVID-19 presents to employers. And it is complex. Uh, Mike, let's start out with this one basic question, which is going to be kind of the main purpose of this webinar, which is how can employers make a plan to go back to work safe, as safely as possible under the circumstances of a pandemic?
1: Well, I mean, that certainly is a, is the key question and a, and a rather broad one. Um, and, and it really gets to the heart of where we are now. I mean, the difficulty and the challenge really for both employers and employees is that, as you said, this is all new. Um, it's new in terms of the pandemic itself, uh, but also in terms of the statutory scheme, the government guidance and, and guidelines that have been issued. You know, it feels like I know to everybody that we've been dealing with this for months, if not years. Uh, But it really is only about six, uh, seven months being in this and trying to learn uh, all we can about employer obligations, employee obligations. So just keeping abreast of all of that uh, has been challenging uh, in and of itself. Uh, But when you get to uh, trying to create a work plan, you have to make sure that you are not only keeping up with what the current best practices are, uh, but you also need to have a lot of flexibility. Because you are adapting to constantly changing best practices and guidelines, and you're also having to adapt to the psychology that really attaches to a lot of uh, employees' feelings when it comes to returning to work that oftentimes go beyond what the legal and technical obligations may be.
0: That's true. So it requires, as we said in the beginning, a little bit of empathy, right? Uh, People are nervous. People are scared. Sometimes they're angry or resentful. There's a lot of emotional range in people's response to COVID-19, and employers need to be sensitive to that.
1: Yeah, no question. I mean, look, we have competing interests that aren't always competing. On the one hand, you have businesses that need to operate, many of whom, if not all of whom, uh, suffered a great deal as well in those opening months in particular uh, of this pandemic. So there is an interest on the business side to be able to operate and operate safely and productively. On the other side, uh, there are certainly interests that employees have when it comes to feeling safe, uh, feeling healthy and, and being in a workplace that can provide both to them.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think the key thing there is to focus on what are the common interests, right? People do want to come back to work. They do want to maintain their jobs. They do want a safe and healthy working environment. Well, employers want that as well. Employers have been wanting to come back and restart the economy and resume normal business operations since the beginning of the stay at home orders. However, The situation's changed, and I think it's a good point at the outset of this conversation for us to recognize that COVID-19 is a real pandemic, and the SARS-CoV-2 virus is highly infectious, and it can be fatal for many people. Of course, there are those who sometimes get the disease and have no symptoms whatsoever, or they have what they call a mild case, which might not be so mild. I've talked to a number of people who've had it, and candidly, they said it was one of the worst sicknesses they've had, so it's not always that mild, even if you don't get admitted to a hospital.
1: It's all relative.
0: The main message there is that this is a real thing, and employers need to take it seriously. I bring that up because I've noticed that some folks that I talk to are in a kind of state of shock or a state of denial. They say, well, we're just waiting for this to go away so we can go back to life as normal. What's your perspective on that, Mike? I mean, if you're going to operate a business in the foreseeable future, do you think there's a chance that we'll go back to life as normal?
1: Uh, Well, you know, like everything, when it comes to the law, uh, we deal with terms of art. And I'll throw it back at you in terms of what do we mean by normal? Um, you know, do I, do I think that we will get to a point in time where people will freely be uh, going back, commuting back and forth to their offices, taking public transportation and mass transit, depending on where you are? Yeah, I think we will get back to that point at, at some uh, point in time. The when is the big question. Um, I also do think that there will be uh, a lot of new normals. Um, I think, you know, we're seeing some of that right now as you and I are recording this uh, over Zoom. Uh, You know, how many people actually heard of Zoom uh, just in February of this year? Um, So I think, you know, there will be a lot more uh, contact and communications between and among groups virtually uh, than you will uh, with in-person meetings. Although I'm a big believer that you can't completely eliminate uh, in-person interactions. Um, But will you have... You know, the same level and number of in-person interactions. Will you have uh, the same number of offices going with the open office floor plans, uh, as we heard so much about over the past few years before the pandemic uh, started? Um, So, uh, you know, I think the answer to your question is we will get some of our old reality back. um, But I think at least for the the short and maybe indefinite future, uh, there will be a lot of new in the new normal.
0: That's right. One of the reasons for that new normal, uh, one of the reasons we were even having this conversation, candidly, is that there is currently no vaccine available in the United States, and there may not be a vaccine available for quite some time. Uh, There's been a lot of excited talk and optimistic projections, but the reality when you talk to people who are experts in vaccines is that it takes quite some time to finish the clinical testing and trials uh, to ensure the safety of those vaccines, and so that might take many more months. And of course, there's no medical cure for this disease, and we don't have natural immunity to it, which means that we're all vulnerable. That means we all have a responsibility to change our behavior. We have to modify our behavior because that's really the only way to stop the spread of this disease. And so if you're planning to bring people back to the workplace, behavior modification is one of the key principles that you've got to have in your back-to-work safe plan. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit more about today. Um, What are the key elements of a back-to-work safe plan from your perspective?
1: Well, um, I think some of the things that you want to think about, uh, number one, who is going to be returning? Uh, are you bringing back your entire workforce uh, or are you going to be bringing back certain groups, certain groups that you deem uh, more essential than others, certain groups that can, adap- can adapt uh, uh, more easily to uh, physical modifications in the workplace? So I think that's the first question. Who are you bringing back if it's going to be fewer than your entire workforce? And there are certainly sub questions that go along with that first question. Uh, the second aspect of a, of a return to work plan um, involved the question of, well, what physical changes do you need to make to your workplace? Um, not just putting up signs, talking about masks or social distancing, but are there going to be directional arrows uh, on the walls or on the floors? What are you gonna be doing about certain common areas that are used uh, frequently by employees? So the physical aspect, the physical change to the workplace is something that you need to be thinking about in your return to work plan. Um, thirdly, uh, the as I said a moment ago, the psychological aspect. What are you going to be changing, if at all, with your normal uh, corporate policies? Uh, sure, there are certain laws and regulations and guidelines that impose legal requirements when certain employees, for example, need a reasonable accommodation. They can't come back to work or they can't come back to work uh, without some sort of accommodation or change. But what about those individuals who don't necessarily meet the legal requirements that will trigger uh, some obligation under the law? What are you going to do with regard to those individuals? As as I said, the psychology aspect of this is critical to keep in mind. Um, The flexibility aspect of this critical to keep in mind. Um, just to give you one example, if you have an individual who has a, just a generalized fear about leaving the home and going to the workplace, maybe it's just leaving the home that he or she hasn't done in months, maybe it's the, the public transportation that's concerning. Well, you might not be entitled to leave or an accommodation uh, under federal state law, um, but you know, do you as an employer want to simply play hardball with that individual and say to him or her well if you don't return and don't return immediately go look for another job uh, how flexible do you want to be uh, to either help or impede the morale uh, the the morale uh, of your workforce so, These are all, I think, issues that you need to be thinking about when you're creating a plan, not something that needs to be hard and fast and just technical in nature, but one that certainly accounts for the legal obligations, but also addresses physical workplace modifications, as well as the psychological and morale impacts uh, of whatever you're going to do.
0: And let's note that each of these is, in some ways, it's a fuzzy topic, right? It's not a clean cut thing. And sometimes it's a gray area. Or as you pointed out, sometimes the actual regulations and guidelines that we get from the government are changing themselves. And so this is a perilous topic, right? Because uh, companies have to have policies. They want to communicate those policies clearly. But they also have to be mindful that the landscape is evolving in real time, even as the medical understanding of this particular disease is evolving in real time, too.
1: Oh, there's no question about that i mean the the legal uh issues are evolving there are so many people right or wrong who believe that there are a lot of politics that play into this uh and we know as we're recording this at the end of september getting closer to to the general election uh, there may be things that impact return to work and and workplace health and safety and leave requirements that may change as well uh, if we get a change in administration uh, after the election so Uh, You're right. These are challenges that employers, employees and attorneys and public policymakers and uh, everybody uh, really are uh, grappling with and have been since March.
0: And just to add another dimension of drama to all of this, we're recording this on September 29th, 2020. And the background of this conversation is that during the past two weeks, The number of cases per day of COVID-19 that are discovered, tested, and found in the United States has gone up by 25% in just the last two weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago, it was 30,000 cases a day, which wasn't great, by the way. That was our best that we've been able to achieve uh, with all of our measures. Uh, A week ago, the number went up to 35,000 cases a day, and and now today, the number is over 40,000 cases a day. The numbers are going in the wrong direction in most U.S. states right now. Uh, All this points to what lots of experts have uh, have expressed is a real possibility with this kind of respiratory disease, which is a resurgence or a so-called second wave that might be coming as soon as October next month or in November, right in time for the election. So you can imagine a pretty chaotic scene in the last quarter of 2020 ahead of us. And for HR managers and those who have to do compliance and risk mitigation in corporations, this will be a perilous time. It's going to require a lot of attention and a lot of care.
1: Well, look, uh, there's no question that the last quarter of 2020 is going to be significant to watch. I mean, among the other issues that you talked about, you have back to school. Uh, as we went into September. So you're having, uh, you know, younger children, teachers, uh, administrators, starting to congregate uh, inside in schools around the country and in uh, big cities, certainly. You're having weather changes in many parts of the country uh, where you're not able to congregate as often and for as long outside. So whether it's for social reasons, restaurants, Uh, or otherwise, more people uh, are starting to congregate inside uh, in the cold or the inclement weather. You're also, and it's not to say we don't have holidays throughout the entire year, um, but September has seen, uh, you know, some holidays for certain portions of the population. We will continue that as we go through October when we have uh, Halloween, which which tends to be a very interactive holiday, uh, and then getting into Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas and Hanukkah, all holidays where not only do you have people inside because of the weather, but you have people gathering in large numbers. So, you know, to your point, I think the fourth quarter of 2020, for a lot of reasons, uh, as we get to the new year, uh, is really going to be telling us to, you know, what the challenges are and uh, how much we have to do to try to confront them.
0: So for employers, they have the responsibility of monitoring this ever-changing landscape. And at the same time, they have a second set of obligations, which is to communicate clearly to their employees, both the obligations that the employees have and also the reasonable expectations that those employees might have. And the third part of that is training. Um, No matter what your plans are for returning to work, in order to return to work safely, you've got to explain to employees what's changed, what's new, what's different about the workplace, what's different about the workflow, is there new equipment that's been issued to employees? All of this requires training. And so back to work safe plans always have a component of training. And from our perspective at COVID Smart, we feel that training is the most cost-effective measure that any company can do uh, because it's the best preventative thing. If you train people in the right behaviors to prevent the disease, And it's a lot less expensive on a per user basis than, say, you know, testing, swab testing or antigen testing, blood testing and so forth. Um, Mike, let's talk a little bit about training programs, because there are some specific things that should be included in a training program. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. And I just want to piggyback on what you just said, because it's such a critical point, Robert. I mean, the the kinds of training that that you do, your organization does, uh, and certainly the kinds of training that we do from the legal side uh, at our firm, There's a real critical um, uh, component to that, and that is the the people who are being trained. I say very often, uh, whether I'm doing a webinar or a podcast or whatever it is, when you're speaking to C-suite executives or senior management of companies, maybe you're talking with human resources or benefits professionals, the thing you really have to keep in mind is that the people who also need this training are the folks who are in the trenches with the employees on a day-to-day basis, the managers and the supervisors. Uh, It's one thing, as I said, for the higher executives and HR people to understand these issues and and understand the finer training points. But those who are interacting with the rank-and-file employees on a day-to-day basis, they need to know the do's and don'ts if somebody comes to you asking for an accommodation. They need to know what can and can't be said if somebody is uh, raising an issue with wearing a mask uh, or you're seeing a group of people who are not socially distant. So this training aspect, before you even start getting into the the contents and the substance, it's real critical, as you said, Robert, that, you know, the organization as a whole uh, are getting trained on these issues.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. We believe the best way to do it is to train everybody in the company on a common baseline of behaviors. And then, of course, for the experts in the HR department, other departments, They might want to go deeper, and they'll need that expertise, of course, but it's really important to communicate to everybody what the new expectations are. In fact, my view, Mike, uh, is it's very hard to enforce a behavior policy in a company if you haven't done training, right, because the company doesn't have a a solid basis for enforcing it in any way. So, for instance, you know, you see plenty of companies handing out masks. Back Back in April, they weren't giving out masks to grocery store workers, but then suddenly in May, they started doing it but they didn't train those workers on how to wear the mask properly. And so often, if you go to the grocery store, you'll see people with the mask down here or down here or down here. Hey folks, they're not solving any problems with that. That is not actually a problem.
1: Their neck is safe at least, but uh, they're not wearing it properly. I mean, look, I I also say quite frequently, I I analogize this to uh, raising children to a large extent. Uh, If you think that you can start Uh, imposing discipline or talking about rules and judgment when your children first become teenagers, um, you're missing the boat. It really starts early on uh, when you're trying to instill some values, instill some practices and customs uh, with your kids early on. It's really no different when you're dealing with corporate America, when you have developed a culture of communication, of open communication, a culture of training Uh, a culture of setting expectations and having a free-flowing discussion with your workforce, Uh, you know, something like this happens, it's going to be a lot easier to continue that culture, as you said, as opposed to never having done this. And now all of a sudden, July 2020 comes and we're scrambling to figure out why are people not following these guidelines or why are our employees not understanding how to wear a mask?
0: You know and here's a place where it's very easy for an employer to inadvertently fall afoul of a law they can make a mistake uh, for instance uh, a lot of folks may be unaware that there's different rules and different regulations across the united states there isn't one set of rules or guidelines that can be enforced and um you know we, we uh, probably don't have time to get into it but there are a number of u.s states particularly in new england uh, a few in the midwest chicago and michigan um, virginia and kentucky and along the West Coast, California, uh, Oregon and Washington that oblige employers to do some sort of training and they recommend it strongly that you do that training before you return to the workplace. But of course, each of those sets of rules and regulations vary. So now imagine a corporation that's got employees all over the country and some jurisdictions, they have these requirements, other jurisdictions, they don't, and no matter where they are, the jurisdiction, the, the, the rules will vary by jurisdiction. Mike, what do you do when you have a client That's trying to bring people back to work, and they're in a multi-jurisdictional situation.
1: Well, you hit on such a key challenge for employment law generally. It it used to be 10, 15, 20 years ago, you did have very much a federal scheme when it came to um, employment law. Uh, But now, the last uh, 10 years and certainly the last five years, uh, and and we can spend another hour talking about why this is the case, uh, but the states and the local governments are really getting into the act when it comes to employment law, developing their own requirements and their own statutory schemes. So you hit it on the head. For those uh, employers who are multi-jurisdictional, you really need to have a good understanding as to what the requirements are in each state Uh, And then make a decision how you are going to implement those differences, if there are any. For example, perhaps your organization is going to have uh, state-by-state addendums to your manuals or handbooks or, or policy trainings. There are also some organizations that say, hey, let's look at all of them that we may be subject to, figure out which is the strictest, and then we will implement the strictest policy and requirements across the board to all of our employees. You know this is no different than when we've seen the last couple of years uh, in the midst of the me too movement with uh, sexual harassment training mm-hmm. uh being a real big issue around the country for employers and many states not only had harassment training requirements but they differed in terms of the content the length uh in person virtual so it was the same kind of issue now that you're dealing with uh training perhaps on return to work and covid 19 issues you know, you really have an extra layer of challenge if you are a multi-jurisdictional company.
0: And you can imagine the complexity of that, because also the information is changing in real time, right? So every single That's week, right. we've notice this just with the CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one week they'll post a set of guidelines and then a week later they'll take them down. And sometimes it's actually mm-hmm. faster than that. Uh, so yeah, that presents a certain set of issues for employers. One thing I've noticed is that on a county basis, in some parts, uh, I live in California and here uh, in some of the counties, they've issued a set of guidelines and training, but it's only aimed at one person in an organization. Uh, So let's say that's the safety manager, or maybe it's just the manager of the business if it's a small business. Now, what people might not realize is that confers extra responsibility on the employer because now suddenly the government, the local government has kind of shifted the responsibility for communicating to the employees onto that manager, onto that one person who takes the course. And again, I see that as a weakness, because I think if you train everybody on a common set of information, they've all got it and you can prove they've all been trained versus hoping that one person in your organization will communicate it to everybody else.
1: Well, that's it. It's like the game of telephone. You know, yeah. you're, you're, you're shifting the burden to the employer to, to yeah. train that one site manager or, or designated individual. Are you confident that that individual is capable uh, to then communicate in the right way and all of the substance of that training to the different groups of people below him or her
0: it's an important responsibility and i i candidly think that uh you know in the absence of some kind of central unified set of guidelines uh companies really need to take on some advice uh, and really get you know a professional opinion on how best to proceed especially if you're in multiple jurisdictions but even so you know you're just in a single state it can vary from county to county
1: now, yeah, it's a tough. Look, it's a tough. It's a tough thing to deal with. I mean, as much as we'd love to have a centralized uh, uh, book on how to proceed or roadmap, you, you do have different states that have different types of industry. Um, which will impact, I think, certain return to work and uh, related best practices. Even companies within the same industry have different cultures and different types of workforces that require some differences company to company. So I think it really is about, as you said, understanding what the best practices and obligations are in each jurisdiction in which you're operating uh, and then develop a plan uh, with some outside counsel or experts on how to implement that uh, in the best way.
0: Now, let's talk about the role of OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health.
1: Uh, You know, in the beginning,
0: in the early days, it seemed to me, personal opinion, they were missing in action uh, in the very early days of this outbreak. Others might disagree with that characterization. But when I say that, what I mean was everyone was looking for what are the measures we can put in place to protect workers? And it seemed quite natural to look to OSHA for that kind of guidance. And eventually, they did deliver it. Uh, eventually, they did come out with a set of guidelines. But my understanding, Mike, is that those are not obligatory. They're merely guidelines. Is that correct?
1: They're not obligatory. And they're also not you know, that far reaching. They have not come out with a standard, a COVID-19 set of rules, to your point. And that has frustrated uh, a lot of people uh, for the reason that you said, that, that people, I think, naturally turn to OSHA on these health and safety issues uh, to, to give us some roadmap and some guidance. And again, I think there are a few reasons why they have been reluctant to do that. So what we have instead is sort of a patchwork of um, standards, whether it's specific PPE standards or uh, other types of guidelines for such things as cloth face coverings. Um, So it's really much more of a patchwork as opposed to a single standard. Here's what employers need to do. Um, You know, the other thing to keep in mind is OSHA has uh, forever had their general duty clause. And I think in large measure, Um, they and employers are really falling back on that catch-all general duty clause. What does that mean? It means that employers have a general duty to create and maintain a workplace that is free from recognized hazards that might cause death or serious physical harm. So I think OSHA has taken the position that, uh, you know, we still are perhaps in a temporary situation, however serious it may be, And while we may come up with guidelines for specific aspects of it, like PPE, we're going to rely on the general duty clause, which requires employers, I think, to assess their particular workplace, assess the hazards and risks uh, that are associated with the roles and the jobs and duties in that workplace, uh, and then implement and again, train employees based on uh, whatever unique aspects exist in those workplaces with those roles, rather than having or trying to have a one-size-fits-all national standard uh, issued by OSHA. And
0: maybe, given that the United States is a, a collection of very different states with very different geographies and, frankly, different political philosophies in each of those states, it might be it might be an impossible ask, right, to to ask the federal government to issue this guideline. And what we're probably talking about, we seem to be skirting around this topic. That you know, on the one hand, the CDC hasn't been able to come out with consistent uh, guidance, and on the other hand, OSHA is saying you've got this general duty. Uh, you know, it would be it wouldn't be unreasonable for an employer to say, okay, we understand we've got the general duty. Can you give us the general guidance? And that unfortunately is not forthcoming. I happen to live in California where, uh, you know, we love issuing regulations. And in the absence of a federal regulation, there's always Cal OSHA who loves to step up and fill the vacuum, right? They abhor a vacuum. So they're going to fill it with their own set of regulations. Um, Now, you can imagine the the stress that this puts on employers because they're having to chase after all of that, that evolving landscape. Okay. Let me shift the conversation a little bit then. Um, We've talked about the regulatory bodies. We've talked about the jurisdictions. We've talked about this evolving set of uh, guidelines that you need to keep an eye on and and probably uh, refer to professional advice from a trusted law firm so that you get the good information when when it's timely. Let's talk a little bit now about reasonable expectations. You brought this up in the beginning. And I think it's really important for us to spend at least a couple minutes that remain talking about what is a reasonable set of expectations that an employee can have of their employer when they return to work, when they're asked to come back to the workplace.
1: I think there are two aspects of that. I think um, the first expectation that employees probably should be able to have is that employers have given thought to the kinds of issues that we're talking about and then have gone beyond giving it thought and Uh, have started to put pen to paper, uh, and again, beyond just putting something in a written policy, actually have created a plan to implement that policy, which is uh, hopefully going to be based on best practices and as much guidance as as they can from the federal and and state government authorities. So an employee expecting to come back to work, having their employer have created a plan to make the workplace, you're not going to eliminate each and every possible hazard or, or, uh, you know, risk out there, but that that they've at least acted in good faith to to try to come up with a plan that they have implemented and then communicated um, to the employees. I think the second uh, aspect of the expectations is that uh, if there are concerns that employees have, there's somebody that they can go to. And I think that goes back to you know, what, what employers should be doing when they're creating their back to work plan and that is to designate an individual or a team of individuals uh, to be recipients of concerns and complaints that are being raised. Um, th- there's no question that uh, there may be times where employers may be overwhelmed uh, by the number of concerns, uh, legitimate and non-legitimate. Yeah. But I think, I think where we are now you know, seven months into this, which is still fairly early, I think, uh, the employers probably wanna err on the side of the communication aspect that I pointed out before that's so important for so many reasons and make sure employees feel that they have somebody that they can go to that has been designated uh, from the corporate standpoint uh, to bring up concerns, comments, questions. It goes back to employers being able to do something about something they know And it goes to the employee psychology and the morale that they feel their employers care about the workplace they're returning to.
0: This is key, too, because uh, what we talked about earlier, the the rapidly changing nature of the information. As medical science gathers more information about SARS-CoV-2, the virus, and COVID-19, the disease, they're going to start to inform organizations like the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization who will continue to issue more public health guidelines. Those are going to filter their way down to your local workplace. And so the employees will need to be informed of those evolving recommendations. And so having those open channels of communication and a clear and consistent way to communicate to employees, even before they return to the workplace, we think these are very important points. Now, Mike, let me ask you a different question, kind of the, the other side of that question. What's a reasonable expectation that an employer can have of their employees when they ask them to come back to the workplace during the pandemic?
1: Sure. Great question. Um, I mean, I think we, employers should should start with the mindset that we have a very intelligent workforce in 2020. I think employees more so than 10, 15 years ago have access to a lot of information. They have access to the Internet. They have friends and family members and neighbors who are lawyers Uh, So I I just think that we are for a lot of reasons dealing with a much smarter workforce uh, than uh, used to be the case without painting too much of a broad stroke. So employers should start with the mindset that, you know, employees uh, are smarter in terms of what information is out there, what their rights are, um, what they can uh, rightfully expect as part of a return to work and a continuation uh, of the work relationship. Um, But to your question specifically, what can employers expect from employees? Uh, I think they they should be able to uh, expect that employees uh, are following the rules and the plans that they are spending a lot of time and effort putting into place. I think they can and should expect that employees will continue to be as productive as they possibly can. Uh, Remember, it's not just the employees who are hurting in terms of they've either been furloughed, maybe they've been out of work, but a lot of businesses have been closed. Uh, And even for those who have been open, uh, the streams and sources of revenue uh, haven't necessarily been what they were pre-pandemic. So they need to get operations going and they need their key employees uh, to help assist with those operations uh, to get back going again. Uh, So I think they, they should have an expectation that employees will follow the plans will continue to work and be productive, uh, but will also raise concerns and and legitimate issues in good faith when they see something that that isn't right or they see something that is concerning to them. Because I think it's fair to say most employers want to do the right thing and want to correct uh, things that are not right, and they can't do that if they don't know about it in the first instance.
0: That's a good point. Now, what role, tell me about the relationship between the unions and employers. I realize that the number of people who belong to unions in the United States has been under decline in recent decades, but they do still play an important role. And principally, in the early days in particular, unions were there to establish safe work practices and safe workplaces. Uh, do you see that happening today? I mean, I live in Los Angeles where the, uh, the film and production unions have actually just reached a good accommodation with the, with the movie studios. Uh, and they seem to have done that in a very constructive way where both parties sat down and they said, look, the whole goal here is to prevent an outbreak. How can we return to work safely? The studios need to produce shows because they're running out of shows. And they managed to find that. Is, is that your observation as well? Have the unions been able to play a constructive role in bringing people back?
1: I think so. And I think, you know, many people would echo what you said uh, uh, in that, you know, unions uh, continue to play an important role uh, for a large portion of the workforce still in 2020. And I think really, you know, like any negotiation, if you go into it, um, not with the notion that there's a zero sum game that has to be achieved, but that both sides have an interest and, you know, both sides at the end uh, of an, an issue negotiation can can win however we define when, then I think everybody's head is in the right place. I think employers and unions alike do have common interests. They don't want uh, the spread of the virus uh, to continue or to escalate. They have common interests in wanting employees to, to be back at work and be productive when they come back to work. How they arrive at the, in the weeds of specific issues, you know, that's for negotiations and uh, employers and, and unions that I think adopt that right mindset when it comes to negotiation, uh, I think will uh, succeed in doing that.
0: So, in fact, this isn't a one-way or two-way exchange between workers and the employers. There's actually many other players involved, and uh, employers need to be aware of that. We talked about federal agencies and federal departments. We talked about state and county officials, uh, healthcare departments, and so forth. Now we're talking a little bit about labor unions. Uh, so this is the, the real landscape we're talking about is, is complex, and it's, of course, going to vary by industry as well. Well, this was a great conversation. I've enjoyed chatting with you. I want to make sure that we don't go too far or too long, um, but I also want to make sure that you had a chance to express everything you've prepared today, Mike. So is there any question I haven't asked you because I'd love to get that?
1: No, and I I appreciate, again, you, you having me on, and I'd love to continue the discussion another time. Uh, Look, I think it's I think it's difficult, whether you have 45 minutes or whether you have two hours to hit on every issue and answer every question that there is out there, even assuming, you know, all the questions. But I think if you leave something like this with the right takeaway. I think that'll go a long way toward answering whatever questions come up after this. If, if employers go with the right mindset as to what interests uh, they have to operate their business, while at the same time, what to expect from employees in terms of their needs and their psychology, I think if employees go into the return to work scenario, not only thinking about what their needs are and what their concerns are, but understanding you know what the needs and concerns of the employers are. Um, I think that will help answer questions for both sides. And at the end of the day, we'll bring employees back and allow businesses to operate productively again uh, and hopefully stave off, uh, you know, having to go through all of this in the same way as we did uh, earlier this year.
0: Well, Michael, thank you very much for your time. My guest today has been Michael Schmidt. He is the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. You can learn more about him at www.kozen.com. And don't miss his podcast, which is Employment Law Now at employmentlawnow.com. And I'm Robert Tursik. I'm the CEO of Direct Education, and we are the producers of the program. COVID smart. COVID smart is occupational training for the workforce to bring them back as safely as possible under the circumstances. And you can find out more about that at go gotoworksmart.com. Thank you all very much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Robert.